Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers Season 1, Episode 1, titled The Long Bright Dark. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow Years 2012, two former homicide detectives, Rustin Cole and Martin Hart, were being interviewed about a case that they worked together in 1995. It involved what Rust believed to be a ritual murder of a prostitute named Dora Lang, and though both men believe they caught the killer, bears a striking resemblance to another body which has just been found. The first episode follows Rust and Marty through the discovery of Dora's body and the beginning of their investigation. They go to a prison to speak with Charlie Lang, Dora's ex-husband, who tells them he hasn't heard from her since he was locked up. They also hear of another case involving a missing girl, and while they're investigating, they discover a twig sculpture very similar to the one found at Dora's murder scene. I guess we should start this conversation by talking about the way we approached the show. I was very excited for this show. I watched the first hour, and it completely blew me away. It brought up viewpoints Mm. that I'd never thought of before. Even the structure of, like, we are kind of these detectives trying to figure out what the real story is. There's a lot of debate early on in the show about, are Russ and Marty reliable narrators? Will they tell us an outright lie? Um, Are the flashback scenes reliable? Like, can we believe our own eyes and own ears? Or are these to be understood as the recollections filtered through these guys' somewhat, you know, perhaps hazy memory, perhaps (laughs) they're concealing things. And that was just really interesting. Like, Mm -hmm. it's the first kind of police procedural type show that I felt like I was solving the mystery at the same time the show was as well. Really? Yes. Okay. I mean, that's a very well-tread ground, in my opinion. Shows like Lost. I mean, Sherlock Holmes has a lot of stuff in there that's like that. I mean, to me, going into this, I was like, murder investigation, not interesting. Okay. The plotting and the pacing of this show just drove me up a wall. Uh I I felt physically antsy, Hmm. like I wanted to leave the room while watching this first episode. Hmm. And that's everything from dialogue and bleak landscape to the just long, slow-moving camera shots. I mean, everything about this is very deliberate. And that was something that I was not super enthralled with the first episode. Well, that's interesting because I think it's one of the reasons I loved it. I liked the long takes. I loved the long, just lush views of Louisiana. Um, When they start getting fancy with the camera work, it usually serves a purpose. But otherwise, it's very traditional. It feels like a shot in high quality film stock. The other thing that I think I might be in the minority is I found the first episode extremely funny. Like I viewed, <laughs> I think you are. In the I, I viewed yeah. Russ' metaphysical banter and Marty's everyman reaction, like his just open reaction. It's like almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. But what's funny is most of the stuff that Russ said, I kind of agree with. Like I consider myself an optimist. I'm not a nihilist. I'm not a pessimist. Okay, but I'm an optimist that accepts the reality that he says that you know, like we are the product of this unthinking, unfeeling universe, and nothing we really do matters, and. We should all just go kill ourselves. <laughs> I mean, that's the he, thing. Like, he, says he takes that, that information <laughs> and he says, yes, we should go hand in hand as brothers and sisters uh-huh. into extinction together. I see that as more like a blank life is a blank canvas that you can make whatever you want because there is no one to tell you okay, that it has that's intrinsic the 
skew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's, yes, there's no one watching. There's no one responsible. So the way you lead your life is a kind of contract between yourself and your fellow men. Sure. It, it is what you make it. I I think our views on this lineup roughly when it comes to Russ, I think a lot of the stuff that he says I have thought at one time or another and um, probably believe but I, I like to put a, posi- a more positive spin on it than Russ does. Sure, because uh, else you go crazy. Yeah, you start drinking Robitussin while you're driving down the road. I mean, yep. th- that's that's the inevitable outcome of that. So I really like the the visuals here, but they are very dark and bleak and mm-hmm. uninviting. The intro of this is inspired in part by the photographs of an artist called Richard Mizrak, and it's it's got very, like, a chemical industrial wasteland feel to it sure. as some parts of Louisiana do the lesser known parts, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, you think Louisiana and you don't think the stuff you're seeing in this show, you think bourbon street. Yeah. You think downtown new Orleans. And I think it's interesting that Pizzolatto is from this region. Like this yeah. is a very personal thing. Like Louisiana is not new Orleans. And he did any that more, very purposely. It, like, any more than like the panhandle of Florida is nothing like Miami. Yeah. No, so, absolutely. The different parts of the state yeah. have very different atmospheres. And th- that was very much in his mind when he was making this, both through the visual direction, the writing, and even uh, when it comes down to the soundtrack. He didn't want to do the jazz. He didn't want to do the Cajun. He wanted something dark and mysterious. and But somehow Deep South inspired. I think they hit that nail on the head. It is. So when you listen to them to doing an interview, it's like, what the hell are they talking about? When we listen to the soundtrack, it, it does all come together. I guess, yes, it all comes together, but it came together in something I didn't want to watch, something that didn't make me feel good, something that was uninviting at first. Yeah, that's interesting because I, like I said, I I loved it from the very beginning. And, you know, part of that might be my background because, like, you know, I love driving through, like, South Bend, Indiana and seeing the industrial wasteland and the cracked blacktop with the tall grass growing through it. And I used to be into, like, urban exploration where you would go. Oh, yeah explore you know abandoned buildings and subways that were uh-huh. shut off and you're not really supposed to be there you know there's one point where russ says something ridiculous like this is like a memory of a town and the memory's fading but yeah i felt that like i don't believe in ghosts i don't believe in paranormal stuff mm-hmm. but when you go into buildings or areas like that that have been overrun it's the closest i can think of of having a ghostly experience because you see this detritus and this debris of everyday life. And you can imagine like yeah. there's a stapler laying on the ground. People used to staple this shit and people used to collate yeah, these that copies. That was there and, for a reason. Yeah. And now the, it's completely lost. But I that's like so dark. that. That's such a dark thing. But it, it, it has hit something so intellectually pleasing to me. Hmm. <laughs> Listening to Russ talk his, his smack is like intellectual masturbation for me. It just feels okay. good. And I want to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, you made the point that there is some comedy in there, and I agree with you. Um, I think the odd couple-type interaction between these two is prominent in the episode, but to me, it was never enough to break through the overall wet blanket of an atmosphere. I think that Woody Harrelson does a lot to save this material. Like, there's this one scene where Russ says, uh, I don't sleep, I just dream. And this is like towards the tail end of the episode, and Woody gets this glare <laughs> on his face, and the camera kind of pulls in on it. Anything less than that performance would make the scene just be like, oh, God, it's fucking rust uh, uh, already. Yeah. But his reaction makes it really, really funny. And like his reaction when uh, he's gone all this trouble to get his buddy out of this dinner engagement. Well, not his buddy. 
his workmate that he's been badgering into this and he shows up drunk. And then he comes back and he finds out that Russ has starting to get something with this relationship and he's starting to have things stir. Mm-hmm. And he's just stewing like, oh, this drunk, crazy asshole is menacing my wife and children and made me look like a jackass. It's just really, really, really funny. I, I don't know. There's definitely comedy. I don't want to say there's no comedy. Uh, it just doesn't do enough to lighten the mood from from where it, the rest of the show is taking me. And, you know, like Marty sets up, but he's this raconteur, you know, he's telling a story. I'm just an average type guy, the big dick. And Russ is like, I'm an alcoholic. It's noon. It's my day off. I start drinking. You don't get to interrupt that. I found that stuff really funny. And, and it's also kind of interesting in that, that these guys are saying, like, Rust is talking about the case, and Marty's talking mostly about Rust. Like, he makes several statements about, hmm, you know, okay. if you get to a certain point, a man without a family, it's a bad thing. Yeah. And you are setting up this this dichotomy of this one man who's a family man, and he's grounded, and he drinks beer, and he likes doing the things that he... And this other guy is this loner, and he's maybe a drug addict, and... And he's he's dangerous. You know, you see his apartment and it's a nightmare. That brings up an interesting question. Of these two characters, I would agree with your categorization that Marty seems like the better put together character. But there are definitely cracks that are shown in this episode. Yeah. In in what I view as a veneer of happiness. Um, sure. That Marty has. Whereas Rust is without that. You know, he doesn't pretend to be something he's not. Uh, he will show you exactly who he is at all times. Right. And I think that's interesting that that we judge these two men differently based on how we perceive them, but that may not be the whole story, especially with Marty. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things as we go on the series is, you know, you start wondering about reliable narration and how well you can see yourself versus how well you can see others. Yeah. And, you know, when I said investigating a mystery, I don't mean just like in the sense of uh, a law and order, you know, chong chong. I'm thinking about like we're thrown in a situation where there's this big investigation and we think they solved it and they think they caught the ap- murder. But then we find out late in the episode yeah. that they're happening again in almost exactly the same way. And like, why is that happening? Is it a copycat? Did they not get the right guy? What and then it? you start feeling like, you know, why are the police talking to these two men? Are they under suspicion? Like, that's the kind yeah. of... There was like another layer. It's like a wheel within a wheel spinning where in most cop You're trying shows to figure it was out. a single track. It's these two guys trying to investigate this. Well, now we've got that and it's already happened, but there's some hinky things about it and there's another ongoing investigation that these guys aren't a part of. Yeah, I think that's the hook that kept me going on the show is the idea that, like you said before, you know, the mystery is not the only mystery. The murder mystery is not the only one. It's also a mystery of what is this show about? Uh, and what and- are these two men about? Yeah, yeah, you're trying to figure out, is this show about the the takedown of these two guys who were implicit in uh, the murders here? Is it about finding a copycat killer? What What is this show about? And that's that's one of the most appealing things in this first episode, is just figuring out the show. I completely agree with that. I also like the fact that there's so many alien parts of it, like these bird traps or devil traps mm. that, you know, they talk about Santeria. And that's something that, you know, majority of Americans don't have any knowledge of. And, yeah. you know, you're you're in this swampy rural terrain and it feels kind of alien. And there's people like there's this concepts like green eared spaghetti monsters chasing girls through woods. I think it starts asking the questions early on. Are we in a Lovecraftian situation where there's a cult 
Okay. Is the occult real? Is this is is there going to be literal monsters? Is this going to be set in our real world? You just don't know what the rules of the universe are at the beginning. And that's something that will continue to be played with as the series evolves. And I thought that was really fascinating, too. I've always been fascinated by H.P. Lovecraft. And yeah, there are inexplicable things happening around us. Mm-hmm. The, are, the maddening type of horror. Are our, is our intelligence up to the task of comprehending it? And, and yeah, is it san- can we survive with our sanity intact? Yeah, and with, with all I've said about this episode, I do want to say that later on in the series, my opinion changes. It certainly goes from a show that is difficult for me to watch to a show that I'm eager to watch. I thought it was interesting how they talked about, you guys want to hear about our hero story and the place where we carried all these kids out. And they're they're referencing this, like teasing us, like what's to come. But we have so little information uh, to base it on. But again, as a first episode, it did... It really grabbed a hold of me and sucked me in and... um, I, like I said, I loved it from the beginning. Yeah, it did not do that for me, but, you know, I stuck with it, and I think it's a rewarding show if you do that. Rust and Marty don't see eye to eye on life, the meaning of it, nor how it should be lived. As a gesture of goodwill toward his new partner, Marty invites Rust to his house for dinner with his family. Marty's pissed when Rust shows up completely drunk. He plans to get Rust up from the table quickly by calling another detective to pick him up, but Rust decides that he'd rather stay and chat with Marty's family. Rust is hard to figure out because he claims that he is not trying to be this asshole. And I know, I know how to act. I'm not a monster. I'm not, you know, I'm not an asshole. I can, Mm -hmm. but then he shows up to this family dinner with young kids blasted out of his, like he can, you know, I don't know if he's drunk or he's robo tripping or what, but he's not fit for this kind of company. Certainly. He's not even fit to just hang out at a bar with you, let alone being at a family dinner at a dinner table. Yeah. So my take on his character at this point was that he is so fucked up from this situation of losing his child Mm -hmm. and resulting losing his marriage that he says he doesn't do, like, wear a lot of this nihilist stuff like armor, but this is a deliberate thing that he's cultivated to push people away. And, like, this guy's trimming. I've been working with him for two months. He's starting to get too close. So I'm going to do something so outrageous that this will forever put up a wall of bitterness and anger, and I can be left alone to my own devices. Okay. Um, I can see that take. I I don't think you're wrong there, certainly. Um, I read it as him showing up drunk because that's the only way he could get through this. Hmm. Uh, he needs to start this evening and this interaction with these people uh, not in his usual state of mind because his usual state of mind won't allow him to have normal social interactions with people. It's a curious combination of preparation. Like, he <laughs> he, he he pre-gamed pretty hard, Yep. but he also got flowers, and he yeah. drank. So it's like... At what I'm I'm visioning <laughs> his day, and he's like, I gotta get flowers. That's a uh, nice thing to do, but I'm also going to get loaded so I can get through it. It's like those. It, it it's kind of like building a ha- you're you're building a house, but you're also in the, with a hammer and nail. In the other hand, you got a crowbar. By showing up with with a six pack of Robitussin and the bouquet of flowers, I feel like he's doing both. He's swinging the hammer and the 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 crowbar with with equal measure, and that's what I thought was interesting. Hmm. And what I also think is interesting is why the change in the middle of the like dinner? Marty leaves yeah. 
he has this connection with his wife. Mm-hmm. What what is he getting out of that that kind of brings him out of that shell and makes him go from I need to flee to I want to stay? Well, I thought it was her reaction to him. The the way that she interacted with him was not the way that Marty interacts with him. The like stop saying that shit. Don't don't tell people those things. She she kind of had a, a caring attitude toward him and yeah. didn't understand him, but was at least willing to to try and be open and figure out what's going on with him, whereas most people just dismiss him. But and on so the other hand, he wasn't like this spaghetti is a memory of a meal I ate to get. I mean, he he started <laughs> he was trying to pull it like, together. Yeah, like he started that. He he went to t- like the the level eleven with Marty from the beginning when he starts asking yes. him questions, whereas with his wife he started saying like well okay i lost my child and then it didn't you know he engaged with her like you would uh, he was more vulnerable with her and he was much more offensive and dickish to to marty i don't know if there was some attraction or there's some nurturing element here that he missed there might be an attraction um it's a different relationship certainly than you know being in the field with your partner right yeah i mean that's that's not the setting to have kind of a a nurturing, wholesome conversation for right. Rust. Uh, I think I I don't know. I I think Rust somewhere in this meal realizes that this is this is kind of a safe place for him. This is a safe person to talk to. In a way, the police force wasn't because yeah. they all look at him like he's crazy. They do, and like, they're who's this? Get him off the job. I imagine, Can we take him off the job yet? Right, and I imagine that that came like day one. He comes in, it's like, hey, you heard about this guy? Yeah, yeah, he's the one that lost his wife and kid, and he was in the. Uh, you know, deep undercover, and he's into drugs and stuff, and and you know he did he he did something that like he was on the wrong side of law, and now they dumped him. Thus, it's like there's this witch hunt for him. You get this feeling there's witch hunt with him from yeah. the beginning, and here he's dealing with a cop's wife, and he's like, okay, well, I'm not getting overt hostility from the jump. Yeah, and there's something kind of pandering and condescending about the way Marty. You know, it's like, I'm uncomfortable working with you, and I don't know, so I'm going to satisfy my own curiosity and start asking you questions, whereas I don't think that maybe was there with Marty's wife. Certainly not, yeah. But there again, I just still, it's like, it, it's it's hard for me to exactly explain why that shift happened, other than the fact that maybe this, you know, this he was able to tap in first for the first time in a long time, the feeling of being with family. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's certainly significance in the idea that he's sitting down, you know, alone. When when Marty leaves the room, that's when the change happens. And he's alone with a woman and a young girl. And we know from this episode that he had a child that died. So th- there could be some of that mixed up in the whole scenario. Well, there's, And there's also this scene that's right before that where they're driving through the memory of the town. And he sees this girl in, like her underwear at the side of the road. Yeah. And when I first saw this, I I don't know whether I was stupid or what, but I kind of thought like, man, this is a rough neighborhood. There's some girl just running around <laughs> her damn underwear. But now on the subsequent watch, I'm thinking that this, he is, he is hallucinating yes. his daughter. Yeah. And he actually says, do you, be, you, you know, do you believe in ghosts or uh, mm-hmm. at this point too, why he's, he's observing this. Um, I thought that was a really eerie and creepy thing, too. I mean, at that point, he could be two bottles deep on Robitussin, you know? Right, but also it's like the way this environment, like, you you got this environment where, uh, I think this is where a lot of people like Andy Greenwald uh, had trouble. It's like, 
there's this environment where girls are being preyed upon by depraved men. Mm-hmm. And we have these two strong male archetypes that are going to fix this problem and all the other characters. So it's like, you know, another another male anti-hero kind of glorification complex at the expense of women, I think, turned off a lot of people. Okay. Um, and there is. It's it's creepy. You know, you start off with this very displayed, uh, you know, artwork with this woman's body. It ends that way with the exact same piece. There's mm. these, you know, prostitutes that are in rough shape that you're interfacing with. There's tales of this girl who might have been molested or got shipped off from her. There's like all this like, you know, that's the kind of gross things is to make you, you know, that that's the stuff. There's the the darkness and the weight. And I think the yeah. comedy with Marty and Russ kind of lightened that enough for me to enjoy the series as a whole. But I, I kind of see where those criticisms are coming from. But um, the idea of rust having these physical manifestations these these delusions was i thought interesting too yeah yeah and it it does make you wonder like how much of this is him hallucinating because of his habits and how much of this is him hallucinating because of grief yeah because of the mental pain that he's been through yeah uh and i think we'll find out more about that there's a lot of smart commentary on religion and there's this one point where um, Clark Peters, who's, uh, you know, I love him from being Lester on The Wire. He's talking to the two detectives about, um, you know, this, this little bird trap they found, this devil trap. And he talks about it like, you know, his, his aunts and grandmas having a bit of that Santeria in them. And as they, they were telling stories to each other while they're tying sticks together and then as he's saying that speech you go slowly pulling into this close-up of a wooden cross bound by twine and there's also this talk of oh there's going to be an anti-satanist religious investigation task force that might take over the the case at this point and they they're almost like drawing connections very early on between uh religious fervor and this like cult fervor yeah and it's hard to ignore, you know, the idea of a crown of thorns and these crowns that are being placed on the heads of yes. all of the victims. That's like, uh, you know, and, and you know, the one girl suspended off a bridge is kind of like in a cruciform pose. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're they're definitely drying us. We don't know to what end, yeah. but I like how they're tying this Santeria stuff with something mainstream Christian in our yeah, minds. Yeah, I, I feel like this episode is is there to just... <laughs> kind of dunk you under the water and say, this is what you need to be prepared for. You know, th- we're not going to connect all the dots here. Obviously, it's the first episode, but get ready for a deep philosophical show. Get ready for a lot of discussion about religion and what it means to people and uh, its purpose in the world and all all of these sorts of things. Right. You know, th- there's a lot going on here and episode one is trying to prepare you for what you're about to get into. If you shop on Amazon, please remember to use our affiliate link at amazon.baldmove.com. You get the same great Amazon experience, and we get a chunk of Amazon's profits just for sending you their way. Sit all night and watch the sun go down. I'm gonna sit all all right, this is a segment we are calling Smelling the Psychosphere. And what we're trying to do is go back and engage in some internet archaeology. This is stuff that people are coming up with with only the knowledge from the first episode. And it's a new show, 
a lot of the people were having fun making the wire jokes because of the presence of Lester and Brother Mazone mm-hmm. uh, in the episode. People were joking that it's going to turn out the Marlowe's the real killer, that <laughs> the entire murder is fabricated by McNulty to get extra police resources in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Lots of funny stuff like that. But there was some um, kernels of interesting uh, fan wisdom and, and uh, stuff that I didn't notice on my first watch. For example... Uh, people observed that Marty Hart was not wearing a wedding ring in his 2012 interviews with the police. And a lot of people see the trouble brewing with Rust bonding on some level with Marty's wife. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. Plus, there was hints of Marty having relationship with other women, kind of the the weird interaction he had with that court recorder. Um, a lot of people said, well, they, you know, he, that's clearly somebody he's banging on the side. And also that they clearly Rust and Marty had had a falling out of some kind. Mm-hmm. The, the the background information for that. Yeah, I think that's fair to assume. There is a lot of people picking up on the fact that something doesn't add up with the whole Marie Fontenot story of you know her running off with her father and the sheriff not investigating or following up on it. There's some people noticed that when they talked to her uncle, who was an ex-star LSU baseball player, that he seemed like visibly upset but that the woman caretaker he was with was kind of like, I don't know, trying to, what, what do you call that? Minimize or when, when, when someone, I, what's, what's it sort of like, if I'm like acting like I'm about to divulge something that you don't want me to divulge and you jump in there and like, what he's really trying to say is, uh, I don't know the actual a, term for that. There's but a phrase, right? There is. Yeah. We just can't think of it. Ah, it's been that phrase has been bound up and put a, a deer antlers on in some dark recess. Of my memory, it's it's no longer with us. I think that memory ran off with its father, so uh-huh. it's probably in a better place. You know, I would go look for it, but I don't really care. The sheriff doesn't care. <laughs> There's also you know obvious connection with the antler crown that the the medical examiner called a for lack of a better word a crown, and then when we yeah. meet Dora Lang's ex in prison, he's talking about her being a nun or finding a king. Mm-hmm when they go visit the man at the church that used to be a friend of the Fontenots or a spiritual advisor of some sort. Uh, Russ does this kind of like slow circle reveal um, where with the lighting, it looks like he's kind of wearing a Roman Catholic or otherwise collar, like a clerical collar. And he's in front of an arrangement of crosses that calls to mind your standard three cross setup that you see in Christianity, right? You got the central larger cross, and then you got the two crosses representing the criminals that Jesus was impaled alongside. According to the Bible, the 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 condemned criminal on Jesus' left is re- referred to as the impenitent thief. He was the one that wasn't sorry for what he did and was kind of joining in the crowds, making fun of Jesus. Okay, Rust is in that position in this in this uh, scene. Sure, I could see that uh, a little more likely for the Rust character. Right. So I don't know. Uh, there's a lot not, you know, this is the interesting thing about a lot of in the initial theories. There's not a lot of like this and therefore that. So it's just like people noticing this is clearly stayed shot. And what does it what does it mean? Sure. There's a lot of imagery that means yeah. that, that potentially means things, but maybe doesn't have a direct connection. Yeah. To the it's plot. Just, just file, file, file away for for future episodes. Yeah. A lot of people were on to either Rust or Marty being the primary uh, suspect for the 2012 investigation that, you know, just the, the police. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt too. Hurricane blew in, destroyed the records. We need to get some background information. Yeah. They're trying to see if he knows maybe more than he let on. Right. 
and a lot of early heat was on Rust here. Uh, people noticed that you know he's got this line where he goes, "I don't sleep, I just dream." Um, we know that he goes to links to acquire drugs to help him sleep. Uh huh. But a lot of people wondering if Rust could actually be a schizophrenic. That you know, it's kind of like a situation mm-hmm. where he, when he should be asleep, he's drugged out of his mind and maybe committing these crazy ass murders <laughs> in some way to work out his trauma of involving his wife and his daughter. Okay. Also, people wondered like the inverse of that: could he actually have like some kind of split Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde type of situation? Except for he turns into like a Batman type character. Minus the horns and stuff, although it would be thematically appropriate in True Detective. Hmm. And he's actually in some meta level investigating these murders while he's in these like kind of fugue states. Hmm. Any anything tickle your fancy there, Jim? Uh, I think if anything, I like the first one better. Like, I mean, with the idea that maybe Rust uh, isn't saying everything he knows uh, and they're trying to get that information out of him during these interviews in the future. uh, I feel like. Are you actually saying that he is, during the entire investigation, high on something? I'm not saying that. That'd be the internet. But <laughs> I think yeah, yeah. Well, okay. That, I'm I'm putting this theory. No, on no him, I but... think that he's not high all the time. Um, that would be like halfway towards a good rap song. But he is more like, I mean, he does seem high more often than he's not. Like you know, robo like hmm. you, you talked about him robo tripping sure. and drinking and taking. Pills. That all seemed like after hours stuff, though, to me. Like on yeah. the job, he was very, very with it. Okay, you he know, he, a highly he's driving home from work too. and he's chugging Robotus and, okay. and he's going to the bar. That's when he clocks out. Yeah, and I mean, he d- is doing some investigation there, right? He goes to the hookers sure. uh, while he's while he's tripping. Uh, I think he does work, but it's after hours work. When all he's right. with Marty, he is straight laced. So he's certainly the more mysterious of the two. I mean, they, they position Martin as first step Martin in this first episode as being kind of the straight laced family man. Yeah. yeah. Average guy, the big dick detective and mm-hmm. rust is a crazy one. Then you can play the name game on true detective itself. We have two detectives. Mm-hmm. This episode, this show is not called true detectives. It's called true detective. And people are, uh-huh. are wondering if this, if this is like the smoking gun that we're going to find out there is only one true detective and the other is a monster or an imposter or a psychopath. I like after that episode one, one which one would you guess it is? Which one is the true detective? Just because I'm a bloody minded asshole. I would say Martin. I'd say Marty. Marty. Really? Because it's always the one you he- least suspect, right? I guess so, uh, but what they've shown us in episode one is Rust being super uh, gung-ho about this case and competent, and Marty kind of going, eh, whatever. Well, that's interesting. That's one of the legs that the him having the psychotic break and investigating these things subconsciously is the flip side of that is if he is having these psychotic breaks and actually doing these things, yeah. then that could explain the almost supernatural insight he has in this case. Yeah, see, I kind of like that. I'd like that, too. Like, he that, does these things that he's almost unaware of, but subconsciously he knows that he did it, and so he can follow clues that lead him to himself. There's other hints about, like, they, they make these oblique re- references to, like, these big heroic moments that they have later on, and that's why you brought us in to talk. And they're like, oh, we'll get there. People yeah. are one, And they also talk about, like, the first hints of there's this government task force about the occult. And people are wondering if one of the climaxes are they're going to be forced their hands tied politically to arresting the wrong person. Hmm. And they're actually haunted by the fact that they didn't properly solve the case the first time. 
as we're going down, we're sliding into we're sliding down the plausibility scale, <laughs> at least by my judgment. There's a lot of anagram games. Would you, oh, would you care to hear some anagrams? Oh, yeah. Cole? No, these are always totally useful. Uh, horse cult. <laughs> yep, there it is. That's the show. Shore cult. <laughs> horse cult's much better. Uh, Dora Ling, uh, anagrams of Angel Road. Chore uh-huh. slut. Clue <laughs> short. Uh, no, the, I'm sorry. That She's Angel Road. Back to Russ Cole. Uh, uh-huh. We got uh, Chore slut. Sure. Clue short. And hero cults. Hero cults. Smoking gun right All there. Right. I love it. Uh, a lot of people notice that there is some grumbling about Russ's police file being redacted, and that yeah. the other detectives and police were speculating that he's a rat or he's internal affairs, uh-huh. maybe suggesting that this police department is unusually dirty. Yeah, or we've got a memento situation. As the cops going on. always love to say, "Why are you nervous if you got nothing to hide?" Oh yeah, they love <laughs> to say that, man. Um. But there, and other people noticed that it's like it's it might be related to the death of his daughter, as well as the kind of mysterious work he did under the Texas Department. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll find out more about that later. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, also, some speculation about the theme song, and the title sequence. So, the theme song is "Far from Any Road" by the Handsome Family, which is an Americana and alternate alt country duo. Uh, consisting of the husband and wife team, Brett and Rennie Sparks. And there's an interview I found uh, that this interviewer asked them specifically for Far Away From Any Road, what is going through your mind when you wrote that song, both lyrically and musically? Rennie, the wife, said, I saw some jimson weed, and it's a plant that only blooms at night. And you can see these huge white flowers, and there are these moths that feed on them just at night. So it's like a secret time of blooming and romance. Jimson weed actually goes back to Jamestown. There's a story of it driving people insane because it's a psychedelic and because it gets into people's water all the time. Hmm. So it's about these moths and the sexy forbidden ritual they have in the darkness. Brett interjects, the vernacular here is that it's loco weed. The song is basically about a psychedelic plant and love and dark love. Rainy continues, also the poisonous plants that you can't get really close to. I found that interesting. So... Really well chosen theme music. Yeah, that seems to apply to one character in particular. Maybe a hint as to who the true detective is. The lyrics, uh, because it's kind of hard to catch when you're absorbed in the really interesting visual things that you're experiencing too. Yeah, are from the dusty mesa, her looming shadow grows, hidden in the branches of the poison creosote. She twines her spines up slowly towards the boiling sun. When I touched her skin, my fingers ran with blood. In the hushing dark, under a swollen silver moon, I came walking with the wind to catch the cactus bloom. A strange hunger haunted me. The looming shadows danced. I fell down to the thorny brush and felt a trembling hand. When the last light warms the rocks and the rattlesnakes unfold, mountain cats will come to drag away your bones and rise with me forever across the silent sand, and the stars will be your eyes and the wind will be my hands. Now, I saw another article that suggested that this song was about a theoretical cactus bloom that only bloomed every 10,000 years, and that witnessing it would drive you insane, too. There's a lot of, like, Lovecraftian, Mm. yeah, like, southern fried Lovecraftian references in this song. Um, You know, people, like, say the twines and her spines are like a rib cage that's been, like, from a rotted carcass that's been left out in the sun. Like I said, this is called Smelling the Psychosphere. We're just giving the flavors of what people were talking about at the time of this thing. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. 
Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. 